everyone. Welcome to the Brother Cousins podcast. You're here with Jared Wells, Jeffrey Wells, and your host for the day, Christopher Gerald. Thank you so much for joining in today. And we hope that uh, Manly March has been an interesting and uh, uplifting series to you. I know uh, we've had a lot of fun talking about this stuff. And as we were putting this together, Jeffrey had a fantastic idea of, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we just talked about our favorite accounts out of the Bible, like if you, if you, you know, I wish I was there, you know, if I could go back and see anything that's described in the scripture that happened, uh, what would it be? So today we're going to really nerd out on these uh, accounts. We don't really want to call them stories, right guys? Right. I mean, that's something that, that has become, I guess, a soapbox topic of mine is, you know, whenever we call them stories, I think of the stories that I read to my daughters, you know, before bedtime, um, these are more than stories. These are historical events and historical accounts. And I believe we need to take them as such. Yeah. I'm not going to promise I won't accidentally call it a story, but I mean, account. Oh, I still do it. Yeah, I still <laughs> do it, but it's something I'm trying to personally change about the way that I communicate about the Bible. Going through some stories that are actually stories. Um, and, and I'm a fan of tokens writing. And uh, watching a video on Tolkien this evening and got to the part where Tolkien or uh, Samwise and Frodo are having a discussion and, and Sam, via Tolkien's writing, comes up with this line. It's like one of the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing the shadow even darkness must pass and, and on with the quote mm-hmm. which is just fantastic um but we you know we, we take these stories and a lot of them get pushed into legend but these are historical accounts and they had real human beings behind them there was actually someone at church here in Plainview that and i can't remember exactly how he titled it um real men of the Bible or real people of the Bible that he just, it, the purpose of the sermon was to remind us that these were human beings behind these pages that we read. Right. Yeah. I mean, the language of the scripture doesn't always give us all the details. Sometimes it leaves us wanting more because it's not that, you know, the purpose of God's word is not to be a novel, to entertain it's to instruct, encourage, correct, inform. And so sometimes we, we don't get all the details because we're used to reading good fiction, right? But that's, but that's the power of the imagination. And I think effective Bible teachers and effective you know, teachers of God's word will bring out those and help the audience imagine it could have been like this. It might have been like that. Or listen to what he or she is saying here. I think that's what we want to try to do tonight is to take all of you, our listeners, on a, a journey to what could have happened, what did happen, and think about these accounts and why they're so interesting or impactful to us. So, uh, Jeffrey, because this was kind of your um, idea to get started, we'd love to start with you. Tell us uh, what you're going to tell us about. So this is a, an event that I just... Every time I read it, I, I just have this imagery in my mind 
that's so interesting. And I know that there's been a lot of movies that have been made about the biblical narrative. There have been a lot of mini series that have happened. But one thing that I've never really seen that I would love to see is a mini series over the life of David and where there's different episodes that cover different aspects of this. Because one of the things that I like about David's story is that you see a leader struggle through some of these decisions that he made and the way that it may have impacted other people. And really the story, the event that I want to cover the tension of this story starts way before this point with Saul and David and Saul being the anointed King of Israel and David being going to be the future King of Israel and the jealousy that Saul has and trying to kill David and David flees. And um, Saul spends a lot of time pursuing David, but in this narrative, you hit a tension point and it's whenever Saul dies. And, you know, a lot of the times we think of the divided kingdom being when Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the kingdom split into Israel and Judah And one followed Rehoboam, the other followed Jeroboam. But the kingdom actually split before that for about seven and a half years. And this goes back to a point that you made, Christopher, is we don't always get all the details. It's meant to instruct. The historical event that I'm thinking of spans over seven and a half years, but we only see a couple of chapters, a couple of details in this. But the kingdom actually split after Saul died. Judah anointed David king of Judah, and Israel anointed Saul's son Ishbosheth as king over Israel. And you've got to think about this from the perspective of Israel and Judah. They didn't have a, a tradition of kings, Saul was their first king. But the reason that they had the idea of a king was because they looked at all the nations around them and they all had kings. And you look at all the other nations and the traditions revolving around kings and monarchs, and most of them would follow that lineage of you pass it down to your son and then their son and their son and so on. And so as Israel is looking for a king, it's only natural for them to anoint Saul's son, but God had already anointed David and Judah recognized David. And with this tension point, you've got two war generals, if you will. That's what I'm going to refer to him as Joab and Abner. And in this situation, you know, Joab was a devout man of David. He was actually related to David. Um, Abner was related to this, the family of Saul. And he was very loyal to the family of Saul. So he was the commander of Saul's armies for many years, including whenever David beat Goliath. So Abner goes way back in, in this narrative. Joab was very dedicated to, to David and had been a part of David's clan, his close-knit group, for a long time, he was one of the first 400 men who joined David in that cave whenever David had fled Saul. And David first had to flee for his life. Abner was there with him, or maybe close to that. He was the nephew of David. I said that he was 
one of the family members. He was the nephew of David. And whenever you picture Joab, he's a man that had stuck with David. He was loyal to David, but he was tough. He was mean. He was a military man who was completely devoted to his duty. And Abner was kind of the same, but on the other side of that. He was that commander of Saul's army. You know, David once challenged and accused Abner for not protecting King Saul when David could have killed Saul, and he chose not to. David, from across the valley, you know, got on to him for not protecting the Lord's anointed well enough. And he's been basically in the picture the entire rule of Saul. And so when Saul died, Abner was going to stay committed to that family. And so he was the one who actually suggested suggested that Ishbosheth is the one that would be anointed as king over Israel. He carried a lot of clout within that nation. But the historical event that I really want to get to is in 2 Samuel chapter 2. And this is where Abner and Joab meet across the pond from one another. And they've kind of got their their group of military men that are with them. And it says in verse 11, that Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanim to Gibeon, and Joab, the son of Zeruiah, man, I cannot talk tonight, Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon. So that's the pool. And they sat down, and the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then there arose and went over by number 12 of Benjamin, which pertained to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And they caught every one of his fellow by the head and thrust his sword into his fellow's side. So they fell down together. Wherefore, that place was called Helkath Azurim, which is in Gibeon. And there was a very sore battle that day, and Abner was beaten and the men of Israel before the servants of David. So I picture this in my mind, you know, as a movie, one of these war scenes in the movie, these two old military war dogs meeting across the pool from one another. And one of them says, hey, let's let the young men play. Like it's a war is a game, you know. And I'm, I'm just thinking of these men that are tough and mean and scarred and weather beaten. And let, let's let the young men play. And they just come together and you can see it's a major bloodbath. I mean, it's just a ridiculous amount of death. And what we see here is that Abner was beaten. The, the men of David were a superior group. And it just that just continues to happen. You know, as the story progresses, um, Abner actually gets chased away by some of Joab's men. And um, Joab's little brother starts to chase Abner. And he's there's a lot of respect there. You know, I know that there was a lot of tension, but there's a lot of respect there. And Abner's like, hey, stop chasing me. Go after somebody else, because how am I going to face your brother if I kill you? And he just keeps chasing, keeps chasing. And he finally runs his spear through his belly and he kills him. The back and, end of his spear, right? Yeah, with the back end of his spear. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and just the way that this whole series of events plays out, you know, eventually Joab ends up killing Abner. And David was really upset about it because at that point, Abner had switched sides. He was now loyal to David. He had brought the kingdom of Israel and the elders of Israel to follow David and submit themselves. And so Abner was huge in reuniting this kingdom. And then Joab, because Abner had killed his little brother while he was in pursuit of battle, he kills him. And David's upset about that, and rightly so. I mean, somebody who was very loyal to and did what he thought was right got killed because of a vengeance that, you know, Joab had. But I just picture these series of events in my mind and seeing these two men across the pool from one another. Mm -hmm. It just gives me chills. It's just a cool, cool scene. And it's one of these that, yeah, we can sit and we can dissect and we can talk about, you know, people doing what they think is right and maybe not making the right choice. And I mean, there's a lot of things there, but just to take a step back and say, man, this is a cool story. It's one of these that, you know, young men, little boys, older men, <laughs> um, all I, I could just see them enjoying and so that's that's the historical event that just really brings a lot of passion to me and a lot of thrill and excitement. And hopefully one day somebody will put this in a movie and we'll be able to see this. But it'll probably be rated R because of the bloodbath. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Or, or if it's on TV, it's going to be TVMA for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, lots of violence there. And, you know, Je Jeffrey, is your reminding me of the context of what happened it's it's very much it's a classical story along the lines of Hector Achilles and Patroclus right I mean that was the main reason why Achilles uh, had it in for Hector is because Hector killed Patroclus thinking it was Achilles right so you see a young upstart kind of uh, trying to punch above his weight and paying the price for his hubris and and you know, so then that vengeance just continues to fester and the vengeance, you know, in the classical stories, vengeance, you know, always destroys the person who uses it. Right. Even in the scripture, because it's universally true. Yeah, it's a great story. So, Jeffrey, if that were a movie, who who would play Joab and who would play Abner? You know, I've never thought about that. I've never thought of a particular actor being Joab or Abner. I've just... I've pictured in my mind these men with, you know, this graying black hair with scars all over their face, um, that weather beaten skin. Um, and you can tell that like, they're still, even though they're older, they're still muscular. They're still athletic. They're still actively engaged in training and battle. And no one wants to mess with these guys. Like there's a reason that they all went and attacked each other and nobody attacked Joab and Abner. And so I don't have a good answer for that. I'm also not good with actors names. So that's <laughs> another, you know, doc against me, but that's just kind of what I'm picturing. I know um, some action actors, obviously, but Clive Owen was one that came to mind. It's a picture I just showed you guys. Um, I believe he's done some, 
Roman, let's see, Legionnaire type movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, King Arthur was one he did. Um, but kind of a grittier, just, and I think of Joab for him. Um, I don't know who would play across from him that would have the the charisma to play an Abner, but Clive Owen came immediately to mind when you asked that question. What about Russell Crowe? He did great in Gladiator. Yes. Oh. Russell Crowe, he's got the weather now. You know, he's a lot older and he can speak with a British accent. And we all know that people in the Bible who spoke English did so with a British accent. Oh, definitely. Clive, Clive Owen. Yeah, that, that pairing would be phenomenal. Well, okay, and, and now the movie has to be made. I would pay well, 14 walrus pelts to watch that one. You've definitely got to think like Joab to me is different than Abner. Joab to me is going to be a harder man is going to be a lot more of that military might. Whereas Abner is very military minded. He's very strategic in his thinking, but he also thinks even bigger beyond the battle. And he, he is able to politically position himself to where he's got a lot of clout within the nation of Israel and people trust his wisdom and they trust his guidance Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to bring the kingdom of Israel to submit themselves to David. And so there's a a bit of a distinction there, I think, between Joab and Abner. And you see that in their actions Mm -hmm. um, where Joab allows a vengeance to really set him off course a little bit. And what was the the quote unquote greater good for the kingdom? So it's almost like Joab was more of the practical man yet sometimes allowed his emotions and his vices to get the better of him but abder is more like the the general who's also more pragmatic and can kind of make those compromises for the bigger you know greater good well i think abner one of his biggest qualities was he was loyal and what you see with ishbosheth is that he was loyal to saul and Saul's son until that loyalty was betrayed. And there's an aspect of this narrative that Ishbosheth, it says within the narrative that Abner continued to grow in his influence or something along those lines. And then, like the next verse, it says that Ishbosheth had accused David of taking or of accused Abner of taking Saul's concubines. And That's an interesting phrase, but whenever you go back into some of the historical narrative and context, what that meant is he was taking some of the king's property and declaring himself as rightful place as king. And so by making that statement and that accusation, Ishbosheth was actually saying, you're trying to take the kingdom from me. You're putting in your state to be king. And Abner was like, what are you talking about? And that was kind of the final straw. And that's when he ended up changing sides over to David. So loyalty was a huge part of who Abner was. Influence was a big part of it. And then Joab was, I mean, he was just mean and hard and good at what he did. Otherwise, David's men wouldn't have been as good at killing as that they were. And they were very good at killing. 
Uh, he was a, and I hate to phrase it this way, but a blunt instrument. He knew, and, and maybe the only thing he knew was powering over people. And so that's what he did. And he was good at it. And, and you know, his little brother got himself killed because of taking on Joab's mindset. I, you know, my brother steamrolls everybody that he comes in contact with. I'm, I'm my older brother's little brother. And he just got one, you know, tunnel vision on how it needed to be done. Even though his side was technically in the right, he was not diplomatic. And, and you know, he just wanted to power his way through. And this is, we've got the ability to crush them. So let's crush them. And in the end, it turned out not to be so great. Well, and here's the interesting part of this. You know, Abner was obviously, he had some strategic mind in him. David was probably more of that strategic mind for Joab. But even David wasn't necessarily the strategic mind. It yeah, says constantly. Shrewd. Well, in it was constant in this particular section of the biblical narrative. David inquired God on so many different steps and he was guided by God. And so then he could tell Joab, go be a blunt instrument, take down the Philistines. And that's exactly what would happen. But you also see David having loyalty to God and God's anointed so many different times throughout this narrative where he could have killed Saul in the caves, but he didn't. And whenever Saul was killed, um, the Amalekite that came and delivered the message that said Saul and his son Jonathan is dead. Dave's like, how do you know that he's dead? He said, well, I saw that he had fallen and there was a sword there and he asked me to run it through him. And I did that. And now I bring you the crown and everything. David's like, how dare you raise your hand against the Lord's anointed to kill this man? And they did the same thing with Ishbosheth, if I remember correctly, the, the same men who came and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David, what they thought was an act of loyalty, he punished him for it. So, so a side question, do you think that that Amalekite who brought that report was telling the truth? Because the Bible tells us that Saul, didn't he have his armor bearers kill him and then he fell on his own sword? Because I've heard someone say, oh, here's a here's a contradiction in the scripture. I'm like, no, I think the Amalekite was lying. And the scripture was provide was giving us an accurate report of his false statement. What do you think? I, I think that the Amalekite was trying to set him. He thought, he, again, he thought he was doing David a favor. I have killed your enemy. I have delivered the crown to your hands. And David's like, you don't even get it. And David is a man of reputation. Right. David is well known among friends and foes, which is why Saul was jealous and hated him. Yep. And so this dude thought this guy's about to be King. I have got the ultimate in and there's no one to contradict me because they all did. Again, Again, a very human interaction, very human interaction, but also you just see snippets of these little human interactions over a seven and a half year period. And there were so many, I'm sure, other details that led to these tension points, but this tension point here in 2 Samuel 2 is just remarkable to me. Yeah, it's definitely the climax of the movie and such a such a cool account, not a story that I would I would love to see acted out and done very well, uh, by the way. 
Well, speaking of human responses, um, we could talk about this story all night, but Jared, I really want to to shift over to yours for just a second and talk about the account that you've selected because some of what you mentioned to me about it was that you love the humanity. So go ahead and tell us about your, your story for uh, this episode. So I'm going to begin mine at the end just because it has fascinated me my entire life. And, and, so many questions about the implications of what happens. And, and the person specifically I want to look at is Elijah. And he is one of two people in the scripture that we are told didn't die. God took them. Um, we have a very vivid account of Elijah's being taken up into heaven, his mantle falling where that saying comes from. And um, there in second Kings two, and, and so he is taken by God and we see a man that God honors in such a way in, in a very visible way. And that had such an impact that when his protege comes behind him, he is recognized as quote, having the spirit of Elijah. Um, that is one thing that gets Elisha noticed is that the spirit of Elijah rests on him whatever he had from God, Elijah now has, but Elijah, you know, first King 17, <clears throat> the introduction of him is, and Elijah, the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead said unto Ahab. And so <laughs> the introduction of this guy, and I don't know who he was before this, but we meet him as he's walking up to talk to the King and not just any King, a puppet king who was a puppet to his wife, who was a terrible king, a vile and wicked king, and he is walking up to him to condemn him. And, and he walks up and says, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And it, it appears as if God had spoken to him, but it also appears that he could have taken the law, understood what God had promised. If you follow these idols and turn away from me, you're going to suffer. And Elisha takes that or Elijah takes that and says, this is what's going to happen. And then we see him do a lot of good works, but it comes to a climactic event where he has the showdown. And I'm going to steal a phrase from, Lee Adair that he actually used here this past Sunday. And I think you can find it on the Plain View Church of Christ podcast episodes where they had a sacrifice off. And I believe he described that as similar to a dance off, but a lot more blood. <laughs> um, and so I'll just straight pilfer that from Lee Adair. But he allows them to go first. And then we see again some humanity that these are real people even though there's a lot of seriousness in what they have going on, you know, the, the challenge is we're both going to set up our sacrifices and whichever God takes the sacrifice is the true God. And obviously Baal in whatever form that is, does not take the sacrifice. And he ridicules these prophets. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's gone on a journey. Maybe you need to be louder. Maybe we just need to wait a little longer. I mean, what's going on guys? Where's your God? Doesn't he even insinuate maybe God is in the bathroom? I think that's, <laughs> to me, yes, he does. Just, 
Yeah, he's just vicious in his verbal assault and his sarcasm. Sorry. <laughs> and it's it's brutal looking back on it now. And these guys get so riled up that they begin to cut themselves. And it doesn't stop there because he, he finally says, all right, you guys have gone on long enough. This sham has got to end. Take these barrels of water, go fill them up and pour them in my ditch. And you know what? Let's do that again. And now let's pour them on top of my altar and my wood and my sacrifice and soak this thing down. And then he calls up to God and God takes it all. I mean, it's just poof gone. There's no opportunity for anyone to claim any, you know, magician's tricks because it's all gone. Um, Burned up the stones, licked up the water. Yeah, it's amazing. And then the people obviously get their eyes open to what's going on and they slay these prophets of Baal. And Elijah goes up and prays to God. And then he, the Bible says he was filled with the spirit. I think is how it phrases that filled being filled with the spirit of God. He led Ahab's procession back to Jezreel. And I mean, he's just feeling it. And then they get into town and Ahab tells what happens to his wife, Jezebel. And she swears an oath. What happened to those prophets will happen to me if I don't do it to you. And he flips after all of this that he's accomplished. And and not just this competition with these prophets, but the proclamation that it won't rain. He's raised someone from the dead. He has given a widow and, and the child he raised from the dead a supply of food. I mean, these miracles that he's worked over and over and over again. And now his life has been threatened and everything just goes from his side, except for she's going to kill me. And so he takes off. But this isn't the first time that this has happened, right? Like whenever he proclaims that drought, God tells him to go to, to um, that brook and wait. And during that time frame, she makes this announcement that, she's going to kill all the prophets and Obadiah goes and hides. I can't remember 50, a hundred, I think 50 in one cave, 50 in another cave. And Obadiah basically helped keep the prophets of the Lord alive during that time frame. But she had a history of killing prophets of God. So again, not first, not the first time in this narrative that that's happened. And I could see that being very real and the frustration after all this has taken place. Yeah, and and he just, he loses it because of that. And and she is a bloody queen. And then Ahab's a bloody king because of her. Um, There's a separate story that I won't rabbit trail off too much, but there's an interesting picture of repentance in King Ahab. It's brief, but it's there on how God views our repentance. And and I'll leave it at that and leave you guys to go study that. Um, But he takes off and, and again, has miracles performed. He goes and he falls asleep under a tree. Angel wakes him up, gives him sustenance and said, you need to go on. So he continues. And this happens, I believe it's twice. And I haven't read through the entire story here recently. Um, But then he comes to the cave And God asks him, what are you doing here? 
and he begins to explain to God, I was jealous for you and zealous for you and, and here are all these things. And now Jezebel wants to kill me. Anyone else imagining his story being narrated by the world's smallest fiddle? <laughs> I, I can imagine, and, and this is just coming from my perspective, as I try to be in this story next to him or even see it from his eyes. And, and you know, the only way I can do that is to give him my perspective on life. But as I hear this account, what I hear is a rehearsed story. He knows God's about to ask him and about to take him to account on it. And he's got this story built up because God asks him, what are you doing here? Well, all these things have gone wrong. And God says it again. What are you doing here? Well, he defaults back to that story. God says, let me show you something. Didn't it remind us of stuff our kids do? Yes. <laughs> the excuses and stuff. Uh, and, and, and it's just, it's this rehearsed prepared speech and, and not that it's not from the heart. I think it's how he felt. And as he's making this journey, processing what's gone on, processing what he has done, what God has done through him, this is where he's come. And he's trying to justify being temporally minded, not able to see the greater picture. And, you know, we, again, talk about all the, the stories that we try and the, the, lessons that we pull out of this but i look at this guy i look at king david you know david was the man after god's own heart and, and from every account that we read just didn't look like he was that great a dad at least not to all of his kids um elijah a man that was one of two that we know of that god called out of the earth or took out of the earth that didn't taste death and he has this really serious run-in with God where he had a serious lapse into temporal vision, the earthly vision, where he was concerned about his flesh and his life. Um, and, and part of it may have been that he did not want Jezebel to be able to claim victory over a servant of God in him and give her that victory. But regardless, he couldn't look past the fact that whatever happened, God was going to be glorified. And, and he just got so wrapped up in the power of God that God shows him the earthquake, the wind and the fire. And in, in those events, it, it, we're told God wasn't in those things. And then there's a still small voice. And it intrigues me that we're not expressly told that God was in the still small voice but it says that he wrapped up his head and went to the door of the cave. Um, and so that stirred him to move. And then God explains to him, this is what all I've got going on. And, you know, again, the realness of it, I can, I think, feel how small he felt in that moment. How, deflated he was and and as you let the air out of that ego it kind of goes the opposite direction on you um and and just how human he was in in letting that happen yeah i mean if you think about it you know why was he so dejected well it's like he came he had the showdown and as you said he's leading ahab's procession back into town so he thinks we won 
like, hey, Ahab has changed his mind. Things are going to look better from now. But then they get back to Jezebel and then the picture changes. And in First Kings 19 and four, that's when he runs away for a day to die. He's like, it's enough now, oh Lord, take away my life for I'm no better than my father's. It's almost like he feels like now he's a failure because one person was critical. And what you're saying, Jared, is he was his ego was inflated by this victory that was really God's. And then when it seemed to not go the way he thought, his expectation, he took it like personally, I, I'm no good. And we do that a lot. I think that's a very human response to say, you know, even when we're working for the Lord and trying to do something in his kingdom and something doesn't work out, then we're like, well, you know, I'm a dog, you know, I'm, I'm no bad. I'm no good. I'm no better than anybody else because my plan didn't work. It didn't go exactly the way I had planned. Right. He had had a good impact on Ahab and, and on the people in general that turned out to watch this event where God demonstrated his superiority over everything in the earth. And, you know, like you said, his expectation was he's all jazzed up. He is sprinting out in front of King Ahab's procession. And then Jezebel says, you know what? You're a dead man. And, and those expectations just got flipped on their head. You know, I've never thought about it until just now, but it's almost exactly the same response that Jonah had after preaching to the people of Nineveh that it didn't go like he thought, or maybe it went exactly how he thought, but he wasn't satisfied with the outcome. And he's like, it's better for me to die than to live. Well, Jonah didn't really want the people to repent. No, their no. people hated those people. And the fact that God was even willing to give them a chance to repent, Jonah regretted that. And he hated that, which is why he ran. So whenever he did go and finally preach and they repented, He's upset that they repented, you know? So, um, yeah, I think unmet expectations is the big thing here. Agree. You know, that that's a, a source of so much human conflict and marital problems and work problems. And so much of it comes down to, I had this expectation, this expectation that was not met. And you see that here where even in that situation where he gets to experience God by the still small voice, based on all of his experience, God had been so powerful in the life of Elisha. I mean, it, as you said, the first time that we're introduced to him, he goes and tells a king, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And then he just disappears and God takes care of him continually, whether it's there at the brook or there with the, the widow and the young man. Whenever the young man dies, he gives him the power to raise him from the dead. And then you've got that showdown of the prophets of Baal. And there's all these huge moments where you see the power of God and what God is capable of. And then whenever things aren't going your way, you expect God to show himself the same way that he's shown in so many aspects of his life. And it's not what he needed. 
God knew what he needed and he showed himself in a different way, which was that small, still voice. And it's not what he expected at all, but it's what he needed. And I think that's where we see, and I may get in trouble for saying this, God doesn't care about our expectations. God cares about what we need. Right. It's us that care about our expectations. And whenever they're not met, we get offended. We get hurt. And, and that's the humanity I see in Elijah. And, and again, he is a pinnacle of human achievement taken by God in a chariot, um, passes on the mantle, a phrase that we still use today. And people in, in the secular world use today and have no idea where it came from. So much impact. And, and on top of, I would just, and I love fire anyway, but to see the <laughs> pillar of fire that takes everything that it was supposed to take and killed nobody. And just phenomenal to watch God's power unfold and to get to watch a prophet of God give a bunch of yo mamas to false prophets <laughs> um, or a, your God's. Um, but just the utter collapse of that as he got focused in the wrong spot. And that is just so real to me in my life. I have this insanely aggravating ability to get tunnel vision and focus in in the wrong spot and have these expectations because of that tunnel vision. I, I'm not backing up to see the big picture and it causes frustration. It causes disappointment. It causes anger and resentment and hurt feelings and, and exactly what we see happen with Elijah. Yeah, that's so true. It reminds me of Proverbs 13 and 12, which says hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And I think that's really talking about a positive hope, but we all know Jared that our, our tunnel vision, our spotlight doesn't always focus in the right place. And many times our desires, our hopes, our expectations are infantile, short-sighted, and selfish, whereas the wisdom and perspective of God is infinite, all-encompassing, and inherently good. And it's so easy to just get caught up in what we want, just like a baby. Yeah, now I'm going to get in trouble, but it's the putting Phil 413 on your eye black or above your locker, your, your football locker and being disappointed when God doesn't deliver the state championship to you. May Tim Tebow strike you down. <laughs> if coach would have just put me in. Oh, man. Maybe he should have taken me out. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and, you know, like I said, he, he did so much and had a huge impact on people around him, obviously had a huge impact on Elijah, Elisha. Um, but just the things he witnessed and, and the things Elisha got to witness following him, um, just, it's always astounded me. Yeah, it, it is a great model. It's another one of those archetypes that is timeless and we see it, you know, with different pairs in history of the mentor and you know the upstart it's very much a paul and timothy uh kind of a dynamic there uh, and you know any of us who've had a good mentor 
can understand that dynamic because it speaks to just the deepest human need for guidance and wisdom and our desire to follow in their footsteps. And even Elijah had that same desire to follow in the footsteps of those who came before him. So Christopher, speaking of timeless events that continually are brought back before our minds, tell us about your event. Oh, okay. Yeah. So speaking, going back to the very beginning, the backstory of the backstory, a story that gives me chills every time I read it and is profoundly moving is the story of the creation. If we rewind all the way back to Genesis 1 and 1, just listen to this amazing historical poetry. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. If I could pay any sum, trade anything, save the life of my family, to be put inside of a little glass spaceship and be hovering over the shoulder of God whenever he did this, it, it would be worth anything. Just to imagine the dark waves, the sea of chaos, and then God comes on the scene and as the author of light and life, to use his spirit and his very words to light up the universe. I, I just cannot even imagine how awe-inspiring that would be to see it. And then to watch from that place, God take this swirling vortex of chaos to shine the light on it so it can be seen. And then he pulls it apart and he divides the water and he makes the sky. And then from underneath that swirling dark ocean comes land. And then that land begins to form continents and starts to burst forth with vegetation and lush flowers. And then it's, we start to see other creatures that God makes, the buzzing bees, and then the fish that swim, and then the birds and the, the four-footed beasts. And then we look, whereas maybe five days ago, there was nothing, and now is a perfectly contained system that's lush. It's, it's immaculate, unspoiled, self-sustaining, and then... To cap it all off, God takes some of that, that dirt that was in the core of the earth that came up out of the ocean to make the dry land, and he forms it together to make a being that's fashioned in his own image. And it's very much like God. You can almost see God bending over the still form of Adam, and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and he becomes a living soul. Just like the Holy Spirit hovering over those waters and God brings light to the picture. Now, what God has done in the creation 
he has now constructed a, a form of life that unlike all these others is made in his own image. And then he sets about a system to allow humanity to rule over this pristine creation with him, that God wants to share his authority and power with these beings and live in fellowship with them in the garden. If I could go back and watch all of that happen, I'm, I'm really at a loss for words. Yeah, you know, Christopher, and that's the thing is that, number one, such an incredible thought of just watching those events unfold. I mean, just, I don't, I don't really know any other way to say it than miraculous and impactful. But then you think about the way that it's talked about all throughout the scriptures and it's brought out over and over again. As you were talking, you know, I had a couple of different scenes flash through my mind, but one is a scene of David as he thinks about the creation and he looks up at the stars. And the way that I envision David is looking up at the stars on a night watch or if he's out camping somewhere as he's been running away from Saul but Psalms 8, he begins the psalm by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. And then in verse 3, he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. It's just, you know, I picture David. He doesn't have a telescope. All he has is the naked eye and the stars that he can see. And his thoughts go to how wonderful you are, God. And then who am I? Who am I that you would create me? Who am I that you would care for me, that you would visit me, and that you would set these events to take place that, as you said, Christopher, that I share in dominion over this earth. But even more, as you as you go through that chapter of Psalm 8, it really digs into that you would love me enough to send a Savior. Right, because in Psalm 8, he David is speaking a prophecy about Christ, obviously, right. and the way that ties together that he would come to redeem the creation that David is admiring. And that's why he ends the chapter with a Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Amen. From start to finish. In relation to a specific point, which I won't get to yet. Um, but as you're speaking, Christopher, I have a thought that comes immediately to mind. I, I like to build and make things and and i'm gonna bring it down to a really simple and silly illustration but my family loves legos top to bottom all of us um yeah. discovered today that even eden loves legos which she can't love yet so did she eat one no but she was trying um but you know, starting when Ty was really young, we would get him sets that were too old for him 
intentionally so that Rachel and I had to be the ones to put them together. <laughs> and we would build these elaborate sets and then put them in his room and put them under his care. And it was infuriating when he wrecked them. And he did inevitably wreck them. I feel that pain right now, man. <laughs> yes. And, you know, something as silly and simple and as easy to put back together as Legos. And, and just how aggravating that was. And, and, you know, now we get into more real stuff and I try to include and, and push my kids' abilities by including them in what I've got going on in these building projects or whatever. And, um, you know, to turn what I've done over to them is so often just more than I can handle. And my finite little mind and, and imagination is nothing compared to the perfection that you described God created out of chaos, creating not just order, but perfect order harmony as good as it's ever been known in physical form that we wrecked. Right. And once you crack the seal on that baby, there's no going back. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't told, just put it back together. We're told that now all creation groans together waiting for the redemption that we talked about from Psalms eight. Yeah. Man. So the other picture that I had in mind, Christopher is actually not a Psalm, but it's from a CS Lewis book. And we all know how much shared was CS Lewis. So I feel like he's the one who should have brought this up, but I think of the magician's nephew and Aslan whenever Narnia is created and you've got the lion going through the nothingness, singing. And so by his word, all these things are being created. And it describes the magnificence of Narnia. And again, it, it's just a cool picture in your mind. And, and that story puts down in writing some of the visuals in our minds. But what God did was on such a greater scale. And that's why David's left with his conclusion, right? But Jared, to your point, you're right. We messed it up and creation cries out. It cries out that God is God, but it also groans that we're where we're at. Yeah, and, and our children, they break stuff, and they have no idea what they've done, right? They, you know, like, Jay, he, he can walk, and, and he's broken a few things, but he could pick up, you know, like a, a glass. Uh, it could be the most precious, you know, fragile thing in our, in our house, and he could throw it on the ground, and it can shatter. And his mom can start crying, but he's still laughing because he has no idea what he has done. He doesn't understand the impact of what he's done. And I think sometimes we as humans are that way too. You know, we, we take the perfection of God, whether it be our, the, the innocence of our children, um, the care that we have for another person's soul. And we are sometimes oblivious to its value that God allows us to interact with and our interactions have real consequences. And to think it's one thing to entrust the stewardship of a thing to someone who you think is pretty talented and responsible 
but it's another thing to hand a Fabergé egg to a chimpanzee. You know what I mean? And that's really apt analogy. Yeah. Um, I, the fact that God would allow us to have an impact on this world. His re, the reason for that is beyond me, but I know that it's not for his own good. It's for our own good that he allows yeah. us. It, it's a, it's for a purpose that's, that's beyond, but it, it's to benefit us in some way. I just want to point out, you guys heard it here in the context of creation. Christopher said that we are monkeys. <laughs> so, um, you know, to your point about C.S. Lewis, Jeffrey, I'll have at least one listener that would be disappointed if I didn't bring this up. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien, Tolkien tried to capture what Christopher talked about in the beauty of the creation um, in the Silmarillion is the follow-up book to the trilogy and what he describes as his God character and, and, and Tolkien hated uh, analogy. And, and so there was more than just God worked into his mythology and fantasy, but what he tried to capture was Eru Ilveta, which is the God figure brings these other creatures into life, which would be equivalent to us for the angels and together they sing creation into existence. And the beauty of song is the best way that two brilliant writers could think of to try and capture what God did at creation. And, and not just any song, but he was singing with his angels. And they didn't necessarily understand what they were doing outside of being part of his plan. Um. And, and just the beauty that's there. And, and as far as the transcendence goes and looking up into the night sky, like David did without mechanical aid, there's a secular psychologist that hates nihilism and, and it ascribes or um, subscribes to some transcendency because of going out and, and where he's from, there's a lot of really good night sky to see and staring into the sky at night and looking at the stars and looking at how much is beyond us, not, not just above us, but just flat out beyond us. Jared, you gave me the absolute perfect segue to the other passage along this lines I want to bring up. And it's found in Job chapter 38, starting in verse four, where, you know, Job has assumed too much and God is fixing to straighten him out for real. And in verse four, God asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. I love God's sarcasm here. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? And here in verse seven, check this out. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So the the this concept of this singing and this song and the shouting and the cheer of the heavenly host and the divine council comes from the words of scripture itself. And it's, it's right here. And I just love the line of questioning that God continues to pelt Joe with or Job with about the initial literally got choked up. But where Job is 
it's almost like God is showing Job these scenes on this IMAX screen that stretched across the sky that humanity did not have the ability to see. And just now we're beginning to be able to explore some of these things where he asks Job about, have you, have you seen the bars of the sea? You know, who, who shut in the sea with its doors? Have you been able to go and explore that down there? Uh, verse that's actually verse 16. Have you entered the springs of the sea? Have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? I mean, I didn't even know such a thing existed. And I felt a lot better before I found out that it does. <laughs> it's just terrifying. But I love how God gives these details to Job about all these things that he has made and just being able to fathom a little bit of what God has made. And if I could have seen that, and, you know, I would say it would be cool to see what Job saw, but it nearly undid Job to witness that. So that's not something I necessarily want to see is the dressing down of, of all ages. Yeah. You know, with some of the, the events we've talked about, you see a difference in perspective in a lot of these guys. I mean, I'll start with David. You've got a man looking into the stars and recognizing God's handiwork and asking the question, who am I? And then you've got Elisha, who has been involved in all of these miracles and been experiencing the miraculous works of God firsthand. And what's his perspective there? It's, well, God is going to continue this, and he's just going to keep doing this. But he lacked perspective, you know, and God gave him that. He said, take a step back, and I'm going to show you what this is all about. And then you take that next level to Job. And, you know, Job experienced a lot. But number one, Christopher, you're right. Like, I would hate to see the scene that Job laid had laid out in front of him because it would be terrifying. But what did God do? He said, you need some perspective. Let's take a step back. And instead of Job asking, who am I? God says, who are you? Let me show where were you whenever I created all these things? I know. I mean, if listen to Coach Qual, listening to Coach Qual's chew out somebody in basketball practice is bad. Imagine this. And yeah, all of people from Stratford, you'll know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Well, and it's just the, I mean, the differences here with Elisha and with Job, you know, with Elisha, he's a still small voice. But with Job, it's, Man, it's huge. He gets unloaded on. He's he's now yeah. trying to drink from the proverbial water or fire hose and maybe straight from the hydrant. Yeah, and that's the wisdom of God knows how to communicate with every one of his children to give them exactly what they need when they need it. And sometimes our kids need a soft word. Uh, sometimes they need a little bit of volume. And sometimes when it's really serious, Jared will go into his quiet voice and his kids start to tremble. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, Job's response to what God had said. And and if you don't know the story of Job, I encourage you to take some time, 
dedicate some time and, and read through that book, Job, and at the behest and, and prodding and aggravation of his friends, begins to declare, I, I wish there was someone to stand between me and God to be a mediator to declare how right I am. And, and, you know, I, I can't put my case before God and so forth and so on. And I, I get, he was pushed to his limits. And again, we see humanity in Job, but to Christopher's initial story and point, the awe and wonder of what is beyond us. Job pushed into things that were beyond him and God unloaded on him. And then in chapter 42, he says, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no plan is impossible for you. Who is this who conceals advice without knowledge? Therefore, I've declared that which I did not understand things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Please listen and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me the change that occurred. And again, like Christopher said, it's, it's God knowing his children, but there was definitely a shift in perspective there. Yes. And I'm just going to say, he said a lot more than I probably would have said. I think if I could have said anything, it probably would have been yes, sir. And just kind of hung my head. You know, he he did that. And God kept calling him to task. I, I just, it's, it's a greater scale of, Peter and Jesus, do you love me more than these? You know I love you. Job, God, where were you when I did this? Listen, I spoke, went down, put my hand on my mouth. God said, no, gird up like a man and answer me. <laughs> I mean, yeah. find me something to crawl under or, or just undo me. I, I can't handle this. Well, when you think about that in relation to some of the other instances that people were faced with even a semblance of God, And what's their natural response to fall down on their face and recognize how small they are and how sinful they are. And then there's Job. (laughs) Yeah. And he's forced to respond. And with all of the silly things that he said being brought before him, and I say silly, I mean, they're foolish. It's right. it, it's foolishness. I will say, I'm going to echo what you said about the, the book of Job. You know, a lot of the times we point people to the book of Job as a way to say, well, you know, whenever you're struggling, when you're suffering, you, you need to read that story and it'll give you some perspective. And, and I do think that that's good advice. It provides some excellent perspective. There's also some hard hitting theo- theological teaching there. Um, especially whenever you look at some of the things that his friends say and the assumptions that they make. I mean, it's, it's theological aspects that we see today. Yes. Very, very good book to study. Yeah. I think the takeaway, the book of Job is not necessarily how to endure hardship with patience. I think the main point of the book of Job is to restore a correct perspective of awe in God's majesty. And that's what the creation account does for me. I go to that creation account and I start to thinking that I'm, I own myself. I'm in control of my life. I'm going to decide what happens. No, as Jesus said, I can't add a cubit to my stature or I obviously would, or I can't turn one hair white or black because if I could, I would, you know, create some more of them. But 
I can have very little to do. And if we can just get, come away with a greater admiration for God and a sense of wonder, uh, his very person, because everything that he has created is an extension of himself as um, the Bible says that Jesus is the express image of God. Everything that God does is the express image of God and it's perfect. And so that's what I take away from that. And it's an encouragement. And that's one of the reasons I think it's just so cool. So, um, you know, guys, Let's do that real quickly. Um, yeah. You know, C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letters or maybe there's an explanation of screw tape letters anyway. No, it was, it was screw tape letters and, and the demon writing that humans are jealous over their time as if they had created any of it. Um, you know, we, we do get that in, in sense within ourselves and, um, it's, it's all at God's good pleasure and looking outside of ourselves and then thinking about that story. I've now forgot what the second point was, so I'll let you wrap. I totally agree that the only reason that I can draw one more breath of oxygen is God's mercy. That's it. And well, and I think, you know, this month was really, you know, our, our pad, our podcast topic was to just take biblical accounts that we enjoy and take a step back and say, man, these are, these are fun or these are cool or these are interesting. But as we are kind of bringing all these thoughts together, I think one of the most important things that we can do is exactly what David did throughout the Psalms. And that's a, take a step back and just realize how great of a God he is and that he cares for us and he visits us and he gave us Jesus. And just thinking about that, I, that just should be a pervasive thought in our minds all the time, but I don't think we do it. And so just taking some time to think about that, I think is important. So I would encourage our listeners carve out, like set a timer on your phone and just carve out some time to reflect on how great of a God, maybe write your own Psalm. That's something I've actually been practicing myself is writing Psalms of Thanksgiving. Um, Psalms 136, you know, is the Psalm that it, it says, God, has done this for his steadfast love endures forever. He's done this for his steadfast love endures forever. And after every line, it's for his steadfast love endures forever. And one of the things that's been helpful for me is to write my own Psalm in that way. I was born for his steadfast love endures forever. I had parents who raised me to understand who Jesus was for his steadfast love endures forever. And all the interactions that God has played in my life for his steadfast love endures forever. Writing our own Psalms like that, I think is, is very important for us to have perspective. And I'm not saying you're adding to the scriptures. I'm saying you're personalizing this Thanksgiving and the all that we should have towards our creator. That's a really cool idea. You know, we, uh, David was using his pen and his, in his instrument working under the direction of the Holy Spirit. These were his private praise songs. And we think nothing of someone writing a hymn that we would gladly sing in church. So we should have no aversion to writing our own prayer, meditation, or song. I think that's a great idea. I'm going to have to try my hand at that. Um, 
guys, we've gone probably longer than we've ever gone on any episode, but we've been having just so much fun. Uh, I'd like to quickly introduce what we're going to talk about next month. And then Jeffrey, if you want to close us with a prayer, that'd be awesome. But next month, we are going to be exploring the idea of cross-generational Christianity, recapturing the value of God uniting all kinds of people in the body, whether it be young people with their freshness and their exuberance, uh, the middle-aged category of people with their experience and innovation, and maybe the older segment of our Christians who bring us perspective, wisdom, and stability. We're going to be interviewing people in different segments of those age groups. We're going to start young, middle, and older, and we're going to have a great time doing it. So I'm hoping that all of you can join in on our April series about cross-generational Christianity. It's going to be really exciting, and we've got some good people lined out to interview. We thank you so much for listening today, and Jeffrey, I would love it if you could close us out. Heavenly Father, our God, the creator of all things, we submit ourselves to you and we take the time now to just reflect of, on how great of a God you are and your love for us and your care for us. And we thank you so much for the creation that you've created for us and most especially for your love that was manifested through Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us so that we can have a relationship with you. Lord, we pray that we will develop a love for your word and appreciation for the events that you felt noteworthy to put down in writing so that we can learn about your interactions with man and learn lessons of wisdom and of salvation. Lord, we pray that you'll give us perspective. We pray that you will help your characteristics take shape in our lives. That you'll help us see where we can serve you to the best of our abilities and to the best of what brings your kingdom glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. We'll catch you next week.